How We Got Here, Part 2, Obscure Laws and the Erosion of Benefits. The pandemic has been really, really bad economic news for a lot of people. The coronavirus pandemic is having a devastating and historic impact on the economy. While the labor market has never seen anything like this. The average working family, you know, is only a couple of weeks away from not being able to pay bills. This is a massive meltdown on a national scale. Losing a job in the pandemic is a nightmare for Americans. And what makes it so difficult is that America ties its social safety net so tightly to having a job. You don't work, you're pretty much on your own. Unlike other wealthy countries, we don't guarantee a safety net for all citizens. This has left us in a really bad position to deal with the pandemic. We're jerry-rigging a very, very um, anemic system to try to deal with a crisis. Jacob Hacker is a professor of political science at Yale. In many countries, the biggest challenge is dealing with the health crisis, um, not with the fact that we've got no set of social supports already in place to deal with the economic crisis, or at least not a set of supports that's strong enough to hold the weight of this new crisis. Just consider two things that would have been really helpful for all workers to have in the pandemic, healthcare and paid time off. At the start of the pandemic, around 37% of Americans were either uninsured or underinsured, and only 4% of all workers got 14 or more paid days off a year. If you're exposed to the coronavirus, 14 days is the minimum recommended quarantine time. And if you get sick from this virus and have to go to the hospital, you could wind up with a huge medical bill, especially if you don't have insurance. So yeah, that wasn't exactly a great recipe for a pandemic, but it gets worse. Because if you lose your job, you lose any other benefits it may have offered. A retirement plan, childcare support, parental leave, dental and vision insurance. You've got to figure out how to pay for all of that stuff by yourself. This nightmare became a reality for tens of millions of people who lost their jobs because of the pandemic. The employee safety net was not always so bad in America. Before the late 70s, employers on average provided a much stronger safety net for workers. Better healthcare, more time off, more generous retirement packages. But it's been downhill since then. For the last 50 years, employers have been making the safety net weaker and weaker by taking employee benefits away from workers to increase profits for business owners. And just a side note here, when I say business owners, I mean people with big stakes in business, like board members and executives, but also all the shareholders who own a portion of a company. Now you could just say companies or corporations do this or that, but it's important to remember that there are real people here making real decisions. So business owners have been weakening employee benefits for the last 50 years. We're going to tell you the story of how that's been done. And it's not because we came together as a nation and decided cutting employee benefits is a great idea. No, we didn't have a big national public debate and pass blockbuster laws to change our society. In many cases, it was a slow, quiet chipping away. Jacob says it happened through what you might call subterranean politics. By that, Jacob means sneaky provisions put into obscure laws. How obscure? Well, have you ever heard of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974? How about the Revenue Act of 1978? Yeah, not exactly ringing any bells, right? 
There's no fancy names for these laws. They're dry and boring and unassuming. Politicians passed them with no fanfare, and it wasn't even well understood at the time how they could be used to erode benefits for workers. These two obscure laws played a big role in weakening employee health insurance and retirement. The story of how these two bills became law and undermined benefits shows how employers have accomplished what Jacob Hacker calls the great risk shift. Risk shifted from business owners to workers. The great risk shift is a good frame for thinking about this entire series. Jacob, by the way, is good at these little phrases. They've earned him a reputation. When things are going really bad, people actually want to talk to me. Let's unpack how these two obscure laws undercut employee benefits. First up, ERISA, which stands for the law's official name, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. Now, the first thing you might have noticed is that this law's title isn't even about healthcare at all. At the time, the bill was mainly about retirement pensions. But because of a tiny provision added to the bill, the law upended healthcare. This provision is super dense, super dry, and doesn't sound like the kind of thing that'll result in big changes to anything, let alone something as important as healthcare. Section 514, subsection A, supersedure. Effective date except as provided in subsection B of this section, the provisions of this subchapter and subchapter three of this chapter shall supersede any and all state laws insofar as they may now or hereafter relate to any employee benefit plan described in section 1003A of this title. In plain English, this little paragraph, just 68 words long, it says state regulations on healthcare plans do not apply anymore. So if you live in a state with laws that mandate good insurance, that limit the cost of deductibles or co-pays, that make plans cover all procedures, no matter the price, well, too bad. The federal government is now in charge of regulating health insurance, and companies just have to meet these new federal standards, which are weak. After this law passed in 1974, employers started offering insurance plans that covered a lot less. They put more limits on coverage, they raised deductibles, they refused to cover workers with pre-existing conditions, and they made workers pay more and more through monthly premiums. Today, a family pays on average more than $20,000 a year just in health insurance premiums. And that doesn't even count copays or what you might pay if you exceed the limits of your plan. Even if you're lucky enough to have insurance in this country, you could be bankrupted by a trip to the hospital. You might end up, like a lot of people, having to crowdfund your medical bills on a website like GoFundMe.com. And all of this is thanks, in part, to an obscure paragraph of an old law that wasn't even supposed to be about healthcare in the first place. It's a very similar story for retirement plans. Now, if you're lucky to even have a retirement plan right now, it's probably a 401k. That means it's up to you to put money in the fund. Maybe your employer will kick in a bit, but you've got to manage it yourself. You got to decide what to invest in and how much. And if things go right and your investments work out, well then good for you. But if things go wrong, you bear most, if not all, of the risk. Retirement plans before the late 70s were mostly pensions. And here's the key difference. With a pension, workers negotiate with employers to decide how much they will get paid in retirement. Employers are legally obligated to pay out that amount to workers, regardless of how the financial markets are doing. With pensions, both workers and business owners are sharing the risk if the economy tanks. 
Now the process of negotiating paying out pensions can be really messy. Sometimes companies promise an amount when business is good, but they don't actually have the money to pay out when the time comes. A recent example of this is General Motors. When the company went bankrupt after the financial crisis in 2008, the federal government had to step in to guarantee pensions to GM workers. Now, business owners profit if employees have to bear all the risk of planning for retirement. And over the years, they've been successful in shifting this retirement risk onto workers. And they were able to do it because of another obscure law which made the 401k possible. Here's Jacob Hacker again. The 401k provision that is in the tax code and has upended our retirement system completely was added in 1978 with almost no notice. He was part of the Revenue Act of 1978. This law is 185 pages long and filled with changes to the tax code. Many of them are fairly minor, like increasing the standard deduction from $3,200 to $3,400 on joint returns. When the bill was going through the legislative process, there was some squabbling over details, things like whether there should be a limit on meal expenses or not. But eventually, it was all ironed out, and President Jimmy Carter signed it into law. But in this law, there's a provision on page 25 that would totally change the American retirement system. Section 8, Cash or Deferred Arrangements. For purposes of this title, contributions made by an employer on behalf of an employee to a trust which is a part of a qualified cash or deferred arrangement, as defined in Section 401k2, shall not be treated... All of this just means that part of your salary can be put into a savings account without it being taxed as wages. In other words, the provision created the 401k. Nobody, and indeed the congressional designers even explicitly said this, believed that it would have any effect. But that single paragraph made a big difference. Business owners have been trying to do this for years, to shift the risk of retirement onto workers. And this new law, it made it easy. As soon as the bill became law, managers and executives saw what a big opportunity the 401k was to save them money. And here is how it spread. A financial advisor named Ethan Lipsig sent a letter to one of his clients, the Hughes Aircraft Company, and he recommended that they start replacing their pensions with these new 401k accounts. A year later, in 1979, Johnson & Johnson switched to 401ks. Then Pepsi, JCPenney, and Honeywell, they all followed suit. And over the years, 401ks have become the norm for retirement plans. If, again, you're lucky enough to have one at all. The risk of these individual plans is a huge burden on workers. Unlike with a pension, the federal government doesn't step in to cover you when your 401k tanks. The damage hits every individual who is all on their own. We saw this devastation during America's last major economic crisis, starting in 2008. Trillions of dollars have evaporated from those accounts that have become the prime source of retirement funds for a majority of American workers. And another one went down almost $40,000. One right. was 80, 88,000, and then, and then it went down to like 50. Workers who were near retirement age around the recession lost a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars. Some were forced to return to work. Others just retired with far less. People's retirement funds, which they had spent years and years putting money into, were in free fall, and they had to manage that risk themselves. The story of these two obscure laws, with boring, dry names and provisions that are hard to understand, that's the story of how so many employee benefits have been weakened. It was only possible in the first place because in America, we've tied our social safety net so closely to work instead of just guaranteeing it for everyone. 
During the pandemic, we've really seen how this system, where most of the safety net is in the hands of employers, has left workers with impossible choices. At the start of the pandemic, I did a story about how workers at NBA stadiums were furloughed. The social safety net was failing them, so they were depending on the charity of basketball players and team owners. Some individual players and organizations are pledging money to help. The Golden State Warriors put up a million dollars for 1,500 people at their arena. KQED Sam Harnett has more. This story, like the piece I did about the Uber and Lyft driver Erica, focused on just one worker. Which, to be honest, most of my stories started doing it around this time. I think it was my way of trying to get at the bigger structural issues going on by just focusing on one person and going deep into their story. Alina Martinez is a suite attendant. She manages the VIP boxes during games, making sure people who paid tens of thousands have whatever they need. She's grateful for the money from players, but it's not nearly enough. I'm definitely scared. Scared is a really good word. Martinez is super good with money. She doesn't have any debt, always pays her bills on time. She lives in a small apartment in the Mission with her husband. As you can hear, Alina has done all the right things. She has a good job, but of course she doesn't have a guaranteed retirement, and she only has a few days off a year. And it isn't that she has bad health insurance. Her employer doesn't offer her any at all. It is a really difficult situation because we're not, we don't have any type of insurance. I was thinking during the interview, how scary would it be right now to be uninsured? Coronavirus could cost you tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. I asked Alina what she'd do if she thought she had the disease. I think no matter what, it's important to go get medical help, you know, regardless of, you know, the financial implications, um, because I think I would, it would be worse to then not go and then affect the people around me, especially the children. This is where we are right now. Politicians have passed obscure laws that have let employers water down health care and shift the burden of retirement onto workers. Paid time off has been eroded. Benefits like dental care, parental leave, vision, life insurance, it's all tied to jobs, millions of which were lost during the pandemic. Instead of providing a robust safety net, we hoped basketball players and their billionaire owners would feel generous enough to chip in to protect workers like Alina. And we continue to rely on workers like her, who have so little, to bear all the costs if anything at all happens to go wrong. Next time. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. In 1981, Ronald Reagan stood on the lawn of the Rose Garden and threatened to fire thousands of federal workers. 48 hours later, he did. We'll talk about how that happened and how it opened the floodgates for an attack on unions that has further disempowered and isolated workers. Before we head out, here are some recommendations if you want to go deeper on what we've covered in the first two episodes. If you're interested in more media critique, you could check out Gay Tuckman's Making News, a study in the construction of reality. It was written in the 1970s, but it still has a lot to say about the problems with news today. And to learn more about how benefits were watered down, you could read Jacob Hacker's book, The Great Risk Shift. How We Got Here is made by KQED's Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett.
A couple years ago, NPR reporter Howard Burkus interviewed a 39-year-old coal miner in Kentucky. He's worked in the mines his whole adult life, and as a result, he had contracted a severe case of black lung disease. My name's Mackie Branham Jr. And I've got right at 19 years underground. My dad has owned coal mines, run coal mines for other companies. He's, I've always been around coal mining my whole life. You're wearing your miner's pants. And I probably will till the day I die. I've always been a coal miner. And if they would give me lungs to where I could go back tomorrow, I would. It's just in my blood. If I had it to do over, I would do it again. If that's what it took to provide for my family as long as I have. I feel I've done good at raising my family as long as I have. 